You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Good morning, Redeemer family. It's a pleasure to be virtually with you, and it's an exciting day at Redeemer because we're beginning a new sermon series. And our new sermon series will be on the book of Daniel, and it will be titled, Behold Our God. Our intention throughout these 10 weeks is that you would see God against the backdrop of Daniel. Now, you will witness some amazing things in the book of Daniel, but they will all pale in comparison to what you see and I hope you learn about God. Now, specifically this morning, we will learn about the God who is sovereign. Truly, the entire book of Daniel is built on this one theme, and you will see God's sovereignty permeate every character, every situation, and every chapter. Now this book, a bit of background, it's authored by its namesake, Daniel. And you're probably familiar with it. We spent about six months reading through this book as a, as a gathered body uh, within the last year. Now Daniel is divided up into two very distinct sections. The first six chapters are narrative literature. They serve to tell the story of Daniel. Now, the second half of the book is apocalyptic literature. It's prophecy of things to come. Said a different way, chapters 1 through 6 are signs performed through Daniel, and the second half of the book are the signs proclaimed through Daniel. Now, to set the stage for the book of Daniel, it really centers around the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And so we need to understand Judah's history. You see, in the history of the nation Israel, there was some great kings. There was Saul and David and Solomon of the united tribe of Israel. And Solomon truly was a great king who built the temple in Jerusalem. Finally, God's people are in God's place, worshiping in God's temple. But after Solomon's reign, Israel is divided into two kingdoms. Disunity, disobedience leads to the division of the kingdoms, and we end up with a northern kingdom, which is comprised of ten tribes and have their capital city in Samaria, and then the much smaller southern kingdom contrived of the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, with their capital city in Jerusalem. Now I'll tell you a little bit about the northern kingdom. And it's a sad story because the northern kingdom is virtually dead on arrival. The northern kingdom would quickly reject God. They would intermarry and completely lose their identity as a Jewish people. It was a quick descent into irrelevance, really. Their culture would only last about 200 years before they would be pillaged by the Assyrians and completely wiped out. I remember I had a children's study book Bible as a boy, and in the Old Testament was this insert, and it had a chart of all the good and evil kings of both kingdoms. And I remember even then looking at the page and seeing a lot more red representing evil than green representing good. You see, there were 19 kings that served the northern kingdom, and none of them were good. And that brings us to the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom would keep Jerusalem as their capital city. 
They would have 20 kings during their time, the majority of which were bad, but eight who served the Lord and honored his word. With those eight good kings, there were four times of revival and God preserved the southern kingdom. It would persist 150 years past when the northern kingdom fell. But also, and most importantly, even in exile, they would keep their identity. Now this backdrops this backdrop brings us to the book of Daniel and to today's text, which is Daniel 1, verses 1 through 21. Now to begin, I simply want to look at the first two verses. So read those with me. It says this, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now this is taking place in about 605 BC. And we're introduced in these two verses to two kings, King Jehoiakim of Judah and King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. King Jehoiakim is one of those evil kings of Judah that we talked about. And he did evil inside of the Lord. King Nebuchadnezzar led the pagan nation of Babylon. He was a mighty conqueror, an architectural genius, a cultural renaissance man. But he was utterly devoid of God. He was idolatrous and he was wickedly prideful. So Jerusalem is sacked and plundered insofar as the vessels of God which would have been in the temple, are stolen out of the temple and placed in the temple of a pagan god. You see, Babylon would have been a very polytheistic culture. They would have had many gods. And it was a sign of superiority to take vessels out of the conquered land and put them in the victor's temple. Now, all of this might beg the question of why? Why had Judah fallen? Well, the short and unfortunate answer is that Judah had forsaken God. Only three years now from their last faithful good king, King Josiah, the kingdom of Judah has fallen into idol worship. We see this laid out in Jeremiah's prophecies. There's wicked and prideful kings, and they do not take down the high places of idol worship. They've been warned over and over The prophet Isaiah was sent to Judah over a hundred years before these events would take place. He was sent to call them to repentance and offer them forgiveness. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 1 of Isaiah, verses 18 through 20. Come, now let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So God sent Isaiah to call Judah to repentance. But he didn't stop there. In fact, fast forward 70 years and he sends Jeremiah And Jeremiah echoes the same message. Listen in Jeremiah 4, verses 1 through 3. If you return, O Israel, declares the Lord, to me you should return. 
if you remove your detestable things from my presence and do not waver, and if you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then nations shall bless themselves in him, and in them they shall glory. Now, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they come to Judah to entreat them to repent. But as one final example, God even sets before Judah the foolishness of the northern kingdom. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Go now, speaking to Judah, go now to my place that was in Shiloh, speaking of the northern kingdoms, where I made my name dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people, Israel. God desires communion with his people, but Judah has played the harlot and turned away. Therefore, God can no longer withhold his just judgment. Now, it's in the second verse that we see our first installment of the sovereignty of God in this chapter. And it comes from one key phrase, and the Lord gave. Now, we have already talked about the awesome power that was Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army, but it was God who thwarted Jehoiakim and Jerusalem. This indeed was a form of judgment. This wicked pillaging of God's people in God's place is carried out by Nebuchadnezzar, but is orchestrated by God. In fact, God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant in Jeremiah 27.6, further illustrating that nothing is happening outside of God and his good purpose. The southern kingdom had forsaken God, and by means of punishment and refinement, they are invaded and plundered. It would have been impossible as a Jew living in that day, I'm sure, to know what good could come of this situation. How on earth will God be glorified if this pagan nation is laying waste to God's chosen people? Remember, though, that what's complicated and indiscernible for man is laid plain before God. God's plan persisted. You see, we can't always see the results of these types of trials. But listen to what John MacArthur cites as four direct results looking back on the Babylonian captivity. He says this, number one, the Jews since this time have never again engaged in idol worship. Number two, from this exile from Jerusalem and from this exile from the temple, having to worship in a a foreign land, synagogues were born, thereby giving way to the structure in which we set up our churches when the early church was born. Number three, scripture was brought together and canonized by men like Ezra. Number four, a remnant returned to Jerusalem, a remnant who would one day bring forth the Messiah. Our convoluted circumstances, our baffling trials, all these things that come into our lives are not proof that we serve a God who is distant and disconnected. It is exact evidence that our God is near and sovereign. The more inexplicable the circumstance, the more glorious God will appear in the end when he chooses to reveal his good purpose. 
Now, it can be awfully difficult to understand and comprehend God, who is always able to organize and orchestrate events to his exact specifications. And I spent a fair amount of time this week trying to come up with an analogy that would help us understand and relate to the sovereignty of God. I came up with nothing. But it was during this fruitless pursuit that I finally realized that it's because only God is sovereign and we are decidedly not that all human experience will fall short in explaining this unique characteristic of God. That being said, it did call to mind my favorite president, Abraham Lincoln. He was a transcendent leader, a cultural revolutionary, and a man of great faith. And often in President Lincoln's speeches, when he was speaking about God, he would simply refer to him as providence. As an example, listen to a quote out of one of his State of the Union addresses. With a reliance on providence, all the more firm and earnest let us proceed in the great task which has devolved upon us. Lincoln was so convinced that sovereignty was exclusive to God that he was comfortable simply calling him providence precisely because no one and nothing else is. And it was in this, in God's good providence, that Judah was invaded by Babylon. Now, after the overthrow of Jerusalem, King Nebuchadnezzar did something curious. He did not wipe out the people as you might expect, nor did he take them captive as slaves. Instead, he only took a few. Read with me verses 3 and 4. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge and understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them literature and language of the Chaldeans. Now this is an incredible list, isn't it? We could have done an exercise right here where I had everybody stand up in your living rooms, and as I read down the list and you heard a requirement that you didn't meet, you'd have to sit down. Now, I'm not doing that this morning because I don't want to preach this entire sermon seated behind this pulpit. But among these, people who meet the qualifications are Daniel and his three friends. Now, they probably would have been anywhere from 14 to 17 years old and at the literal top of their class. They're the cream of the crop, the best of the best. And Nebuchadnezzar intends to create a Jewish subculture that the rest of the Jews, when the time comes for them to be exiled to Babylon, they will want to emulate this group. Now, truly, his intention is to strip them of all their Jewish identity and to make them Babylonian. To accomplish this, King Nebuchadnezzar assigns three duties that this group of bright young men should perform, that they should be educated in the new language, that they should learn the culture and literature of Babylon, and that they should eat the king's food. Now, in addition to these duties, King Nebuchadnezzar changes the names of Daniel and his three friends. And these changes are anything less than subtle, 
but they are further attempts to indoctrinate these Jewish teenagers into Babylonian culture. Let me give you two quick examples. Daniel means God is my judge. His name is changed to Belteshazzar, and that means Bel, protect the king. Bel was a pagan god in Babylon. Another example, Mishael means who is like the Lord. His name is changed to Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. Aku, another in the long list of Babylonian gods. Now, in almost all of these requirements, we see these four Jewish teenagers being compliant. That is until we get to verse 8. Let me read verse 8 for you. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. You see, Daniel refuses to eat the king's food. Now, if I'm Nebuchadnezzar and I'm putting this whole plan together, this ask of having them eat the king's food has to seem the most palatable part of the strategy. Nebuchadnezzar might have been thinking, okay, when I ask them to learn about the culture, there's a chance that they're not going to want to. When I you know, come to them with new names, there's a chance they're, they're going to oppose them and be really sensitive. But when I show them the food, they're literally going to be eating out of the palm of my hand. Surely this is a pointed example of God making a fool of the wise of the world. But back to Daniel, why? Why does he make his stand on this issue? Well, there was no strict prohibition as to what Daniel's name should be. No strict prohibition against learning, but there was a strict prohibition in God's word against what Daniel should eat, and it's here that he draws the line. The law in Exodus and Leviticus speaks directly as to what Jews should and should not eat. Let me give you two quick examples. If you go back to Exodus 34, verses 14 and 15, it speaks about avoiding food sacrificed to idols, which was common practice in Babylonian culture. Flip forward then to Leviticus 11, and it speaks about clean and unclean animals to which the pagans would have given no regard. As such, Daniel resolves and chooses to remain clean in the Old Testament custom, even in the face of the most powerful king in the world. Now, when my dad taught Daniel 1 in his church, he speaks of Daniel as living the uncompromising life. To that, my dad gave this exhortation. What then is the character of an uncompromising life? It is a commitment to draw the lines of our lives where the word of God draws them. Now, there's one thing here that we can't miss. And this really serves to drive home the first point that I'd like you to take note of. Jot it down in your Bible or type it into your phone. God is sovereign in preparing Daniel. He's sovereign in preparing Daniel. And here's the point. Do you think Daniel was 
handed a copy of Moses' law when he stepped into the king's court in Babylon? Would he have had a pocket-sized Torah that he carried around with him daily? Well, of course not. Daniel knew the law. He was prepared by God because he had taken God's instruction to Israel seriously in Joshua that he should bind the law on his heart and be careful to do all that it says. Joshua 1.8 continues from there and says, For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. That brings us to our second point, which is God is sovereign in preserving Daniel. God is sovereign in preserving Daniel. Read with me verse 9. Daniel has just resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. And it says this, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Now remember, Daniel has just spurned what was probably viewed as the olive branch from the most powerful king in the world. This would be like if all of a sudden Wisconsin got really aggressive and overthrew Minnesota and we became Wisconsin West. And the governor, as a sign of good faith, the governor of this new super state, he decides we're going to commission tater tot hot dishes to be made for every Minnesotan family and I will personally deliver them to every doorstep. And he shows up at your door and he hands you this beautiful tater tot hot dish to which you quickly just throw it back in his face. Now this extraordinary display by Daniel of obedience to God and rebellion of King Nebuchadnezzar turns out how? Turns out in Daniel's favor. God gave Daniel favor. We see that phrase repeated a second time. Now what the Bible outlines next makes me very grateful that this is a descriptive passage of scripture, that it's describing what happened and not a prescriptive saying, this is what you should be doing today. Daniel asks to only eat vegetables. Kids, if you're still paying attention, you heard me correctly. This teenager has just asked to forego all of the steak and potatoes, cobblers and casseroles, so that he can eat his peas. In verse 12 and 13, Daniel lays out his proposal. He says this, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the ewes who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to as you see. This test commences and then concludes after ten days and Daniel and his friends ate only vegetables. And how does it turn out? Well, verse 15 tells us they got fat. Let me read it for you. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the ewes who ate the king's food. It is in this one single text that I feel vindicated for my distaste for vegetables. This logic is also comforting to me, especially post-quarantine, The more weight I've maybe packed on, the more pleasing my appearance to the outside world. In our text today, though, this was indeed a good thing. This was less about weight gain and more about being more fit and stronger than the rest of the ewes who were eating the king's food. 
God blessed the obedience of Daniel and his friends by working a true miracle that by only eating vegetables and drinking water, they would become stronger and leaner. This indeed was a providential work of God as Daniel and his friends sought to honor the word of God. Now, this should serve as a reminder for us in observing just our day-to-day dealings that our sovereign God is on a much different timeline than we are. And just because in the moment, a small compromise might put us ahead at work, bring a little more peace into our homes, or maybe even save someone's feelings from being hurt, it's never worth it in the end. God desires our obedience to his word, and he will indeed bless us for our obedience, be it in this life or in the next. God truly is sovereign in preserving Daniel. Now, God was sovereign to prepare Daniel and then to preserve him. And finally, just as I said before, and our last point this morning, God is sovereign to prosper Daniel. He's sovereign to prosper Daniel. Let me read for you verses 17 through 21 of chapter 1. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now this block of text anchors again to that one phrase, and God gave. And we're going to pause as to not miss something that's so explicit and yet could be so easily glossed over. We see in the sovereignty of God also the generosity of God. The phrase, and the Lord gave, demonstrates a couple things for us. First, God has the power to give. And second, God has the authority to give. In God, there exists authority and power to squelch kingdoms, to change hearts, to bless and curse. All of it are under his power and authority. Certainly in the life of Daniel and his friends, God was the giver of learning, wisdom, favor, and understanding. At the end of it, King Nebuchadnezzar thought more highly of these four exiled Jewish teenagers than he did of all his highly trained, skilled magicians and enchanters. Redeemer family, God is sovereign to prepare, preserve, and prosper Daniel. We saw that this morning. And he's the same for us today. But as is always the case with God, there's much more happening than just what we see unfolding in Daniel's life. We touched on it briefly earlier, on what this exile would eventually yield in the lives of God's people. But there's much more. 
God's sovereignty and preparation and preservation, for instance, is much more about Judah in this text than it is about Daniel. How? Well, the lion's share of the people of Judah are still in Jerusalem during this time, and they won't be fully exiled for another 30 years. By then, Daniel will have risen to extraordinary power and will have prepared a way for them so that the Jews can remain faithful and repentant during their exile in Babylon. Also, King Nebuchadnezzar and his cunning and craftiness knew that it was critical to assimilate the Jews into Babylonian culture, and he needed to capture the minds of the best and the brightest. God, though, had different plans. Instead of the Jews assimilating and losing God and their heritage, it is Babylon who would eventually be wrought asunder, and the Jews would return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Finally, God's sovereignty to prosper Daniel is only one small part of how he was blessing him. You see, King Nebuchadnezzar would have no thought of God if God had not brought Daniel into his life. And even after Daniel was in his life, King Nebuchadnezzar crafted great idols. He served pagan gods and worshipped his own creation. But by Daniel speaking the word of God into King Nebuchadnezzar's life, we see something miraculous in chapter 4, verse 34. It says this, At the end of the days, this is Nebuchadnezzar speaking, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. You see, Redeemer family, we serve a God who is always about his work. We serve a God who can truly turn things that are meant for evil into good. So I encourage you today, go and rest in his sovereignty.